The criminal justice system is exceedingly complicated. I do not fully understand it. I'm not a lawyer, which is why it's important for us to benefit from the knowledge and the expertise of those who are members of the legal profession and practice law, including but not limited to our next guest, because it's the second half of our second hour on a Thursday at CFAX 1070. It means it's time to be joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers with Legally Speaking. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Really interesting topics on the agenda today. I know you and I have discussed uh, concerns about the bail system off and on over the years. There's a lot of politics tied up in this, and you've helped us separate what's politics and what's law. Bill C-48, your thoughts? This would be in the politics category. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Bill. So Bill C-48 uh, is the federal legislation that's going to make some changes to the bail system. Uh, if and when it uh, passes. Uh, and this is what's being uh, hailed as the response to the uh, crime and social disorder that you'll see when you uh, you know, go down Pandora Street in Victoria or many other uh, centers in the province. Um, and so I, I wanted to take some time to go through what the changes would be yeah. uh, so you can analyze for yourself whether you think these are going to be the solution to that problem. Uh, and as I see it, it has no hope uh, of addressing that problem because, first of all, in, in my judgment, the bail system wasn't the problem. So changes to the bail system won't solve the problem of hundreds of mentally ill people using drugs who are uh, randomly uh, committing crimes and spitting on people and breaking windows and throwing things at babies and doing all sorts of other uh, things which uh, would occur when you have a bunch of untreated people with mental illnesses and drug addictions living on the street. Yeah. But um, even to the extent that somebody thinks bail is a solution to, or some changes to the bail system is going to uh, address uh, the legitimate problems that we have, I think by the time we've gone through this, you, you may come to the conclusion that this has no hope uh, of uh, achieving that objective. Uh, although interestingly, he's being hailed both by the premier as true. <laughs> it sounds like he thinks it's some kind of a solution, and uh, it's clear when you go through some of these things why they're here, uh, and they have uh, elements of uh, federal politics in them as well. Mm. So let's start with a summary of what would change with Bill C-48. Very well. So uh, the first thing that uh, Bill C-48 would do is it would create what's referred to as a reverse onus provision, or some in some circumstances. So uh, the way that works is that the presumption we have, you have a right in Canada constitutionally uh, to not be denied bail without just cause, right? And it's part of the presumption of innocence, right? If you presume people to be innocent, you, you don't just start punishing them when they're accused of doing something before they've had a trial, right? Uh, but and ordinarily, uh, the burden is on the crown to show why somebody needs to be detained, even though they're presumed innocent and even though they've had no trial, right? Why they should be kept in jail before having a trial. Yes. Uh, and those considerations can be things like reason to believe the person isn't going to turn up, right? Maybe they failed to show up before, or maybe they have no ties to the community, those kinds of things, right? Or it's necessary to protect somebody or protect the community, right? No conditions could protect the community. We have to keep the person in jail, right? Even though we're presuming them to be innocent. So, there are circumstances in which bail can be denied, uh, and ordinarily the Crown would have to show why that should be. 
there there are some circumstances, and there have been for many years, uh, circumstances where there's what's called a reverse onus. And what that means is that the person charged with the crime would have to show why they should be released rather than the Crown having to show why they should be detained, right? Sort of who has the responsibility of showing what should happen. That's really what that amounts to. Uh, and so those have existed for a long time for things like very serious offenses like murder, right? A person has a, if you're charged with murder, even though you're presumed innocent, the burden would be on that person to show why they should be released, right? That's the, that's the theory of it. Hmm. So the first thing that Bill C-48 would do uh, is that it would create a reverse onus provision for anyone who's charged with a serious offense involving violence and the use of a weapon. So it's got to be serious offense, violence, use of a weapon, who has been convicted within the last five years of another serious offense involving violence and the use of a weapon. Okay? Okay. So put that together. It's got to be the second time you've been charged with a serious violent offense using a weapon. Now, I should say, first of all, that's not going to be a large category of people, right? Thankfully. Second of all, if you are whether there's a reverse onus or not a reverse onus, right? If you're somebody who has been convicted within five years of a serious assault with a weapon, and you're charged again with a serious assault involving a weapon, I don't care who's got the onus. You're going to have a challenge in terms of whether you should be released or not. It doesn't really matter who would have the burden there. In both cases, there's going to be a compelling argument that the person should be held in custody to maintain safety, right? Uh, And so that is to a a pretty significant extent an exercise in semantics because judges are smart people. (laughs) They have lots of experience. And if you have somebody coming before you who is charged with a serious violent offense involving a weapon who just a short time ago was convicted of a serious violent offense involving a weapon, you're going to have to be persuaded that the person should be released or that the public can be kept safe if they are released. So that's change number one. Okay, So you can think about whether is that going to be the solution to a problem. Probably not. B, it adds certain firearms offenses uh, to uh, the list of things for which you have to show where there would be a reverse onus. The person would have to show why they should be released. They are things they are. They include a person charged with possession of a prohibited or restricted firearm with ammunition who does not have a license. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to be the core of our problem. No. Uh, next, committing a breaking, breaking and entering and stealing a firearm. That doesn't seem to be the root of our problem either. No. Next, uh, robbery to steal a firearm. No, mm-hmm. that's not it. No. <laughs> next, making an automatic firearm. No, that's no. not it either. No. So, those are the, that, that's B. So okay. That doesn't really seem to be the problem of what's going on in Pandora. No. Uh, next, uh, and C, creating a reverse onus provision. Uh, and I should say, one has already existed if a person has a previous conviction for uh, intimate partner violence, hmm. and they're charged again with intimate partner violence, there's been a reverse onus provision for some period of time. Hmm. Okay, that's, people may not be aware of that. Yeah. Uh, but... The change here would be that uh, now that would apply even if on the first occasion a person received a discharge rather than a conviction. So a discharge is a circumstance where a judge finds that somebody committed an offense, but ordinarily if they successfully complete a period of probation, 
they can then be deemed not to have been convicted of the offense. And that, a judge can do that if they conclude that it would be in the person's best interest and not contrary to the public interest. So that would happen often if you had a person with no previous difficulty, does something wrong, pleads guilty or is found guilty. A judge might say, okay, if you can do this probation, stay out of trouble for a period of time, at the end of all that, we'll give you a discharge so you don't have a criminal conviction so it doesn't impact on your ability to get a job, for example, or travel, for example. So the third change here is that uh, people who got the discharge and are charged again uh, could then be uh, in a reverse owner situation for bail. So is, is that going to solve the problem on Pandora? I don't think that's the problem on Pandora. No. Uh, and then the final requirement uh, is that, and this one is, I think, not only unlikely to be helpful in any way, but is mildly insulting. It is a requirement that a justice, and I should say, Bail decisions could be made by a judge or, in some cases, a judicial justice, right? That's why that language is used. Okay. It's a judge who makes an order uh, releasing somebody, right, shall include in the record of the proceedings a statement that the justice has considered the safety and security of every victim of the offense and the safety and security of the community when making the order. Hmm. So that has to be stamped on the paperwork somehow or said. That's the final change. Those are the changes. <laughs> so that is Bill C-48. And so anyone who reads this thing and has any familiarity with what's going on, what the problems are, would come to the conclusion with virtual certainty that this will not solve the problems we have with social disorder and uh, criminal activity that flows from people who are on the street with mental illnesses who are not being treated, many of whom are also dealing with serious substance abuse disorders, and who on occasion not only are howling at the moon, they also wind up from time to time spitting on people, throwing things on them, breaking windows, breaking into cars, um, stealing uh, things to buy drugs. All those are serious problems. All of them impact on the community. None of them are problems which are, have at their root the bail system, and absolutely none of them are going to be addressed by these changes that have been made. None of them. And so the explanation for these things, all the firearms things that I've talked about, like the automatic, you know, reverse onus for making an automatic yeah. weapon. Sounds like <laughs> right? gang violence that, stuff, yeah. Yeah, well, yes, that's true, right? And there would be some places where that's so. But again, you have to ask yourself, if you had a gangster making machine guns, do you think there's going to be a whole lot of judges who are like, no, this was fine, carry on? Well, I just, I, right? I heard that one, and it went in one ear and out the other. But making an automatic weapon, how fast does a it's weapon like, have to fire to be automatic, and how does one make it? Like, I don't even know what that means. Right. So it would be somebody who's essentially either manufacturing from scratch or more likely modifying some weapon to turn it into a machine gun, mm. such that if you held the trigger down, it would just keep spewing out bullets. I Obviously, see. a very unsafe thing. But, you know, uh, really, do, do we really need to be, do you, do you need a reminder to the judiciary that that's a pretty unsafe activity? No. I, I don't know. I don't no, think so. Don't. And where that's coming from is that the federal government uh, took uh, all kinds of political heat over another piece of legislation, C-21, that was some legislation to change rules about firearms. 
and they had a plan in there which would have prohibited all kinds of things, uh, hunting guns and shotguns and all kinds of things. It produced a huge political backlash from Indigenous communities, hunters, sports shooters, all kinds of people, and all the opposition parties withdrew their consent to support it. And so the Liberal Party was forced to back down and walk that back. And one of the uh, political responses to it from the Conservative Party federally was, hey, why are you trying to take people's shotguns away? You should be focusing on criminals who are, you know, doing things like making machine guns, not duck hunters, right, who have a license. You know, that doesn't make any sense. And so that's in here as a talking point so that the federal government, when they are criticized for that approach, can say, no, 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 we are taking care of gangs. Look what we've done about um, machine guns and B&Es to steal firearms and people who are possessing prohibited weapons without a license. Look, look, we are doing that. that that's why that's there, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so this is entirely an exercise in politics. It is aimed in a direction which has no hope of addressing the legitimate concerns that we have. There are things we could be doing this isn't it. We've misdiagnosed the um, problem. Uh, and then in addition to a misdiagnosis, we've gone off in a direction here that just has nothing to do with what's in fact going on in the streets and has no hope of helping. And so bear that in mind when you hear over the next uh, number of weeks and months, and no doubt in the upcoming elections, federal and provincial, whenever they occur, this being pointed to as, look, this is how we've become tough on crime and how you don't need to, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get things under control uh, in terms of uh, people engaged in random spitting and window breaking and assaults and so on. But it is no, no hope of doing that. So that's what it is. The final part of it, by the way, uh, is that it requires there be a parliamentary review of these provisions to see how well they worked after five years. So oh. I guess we'll have some kind of review in five years to see whether uh, these various reverse onus provisions are the uh, on bail are somehow the solution to uh, legitimate problems that uh, people have in the community. So Bill C-48, bear that in mind when you hear uh, about uh, the great success we've had in terms of uh, making changes to the, uh, the bail system uh, to address uh, social disorder and crime. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, and I know that you made similar remarks after we had the changed prosecutorial guidance here in B.C., and sure enough, the data that was eventually released by the government of British Columbia showed, although it wasn't necessarily causal, as you reminded us, it could just be correlative, there was actually an increase in the metric that we were trying to get down or vice versa, so it had the perhaps the reverse impact of what we were seeking in terms of those that were actually held in custody. I think it was fewer. So I've learned to take what you say about this stuff very seriously. So I must say I'm somewhat disheartened right now. Yeah, if you, if you think this is the solution, you absolutely should be. And yes, you're quite right. The government provincial made much of their directions to crown with various admonitions about how to seek the, why to seek the detention of obviously dangerous people. Uh, advice, which I think I said was the equivalent of advising all the doctors that they should wash their hands before performing surgery uh, and the good things that can happen if you put a gloves and mask on before you perform surgery as well. Uh, and uh, after those admonitions went out by the provincial government, uh, those pearls of wisdom, uh, the percentage of cases where the Crown was seeking detention actually went down. Uh, and furthermore, the success of Crown getting detention went down as well. 
Um, so um, it's uh, all a complete exercise in, in politics. It is not the problem. That's the other thing that's really important to underline. Yeah. It is not the problem. The, the problem with the social disorder and crime, which is a legitimate problem, anyone who drives, and I would recommend driving, it seems pretty unsafe to pedal your bike or walk down Pandora, for example, just go down the street and have a look. Look out your window, right? Or if you dare, walk down the street. Um, uh, and uh, it will not take long to conclude that the bail system is not the problem. Um, you have a, a sea of uh, poor people, a sea of humanity. People are, this morning I drove down there, people are lying face down on the uh, sidewalks, literally face down on the sidewalks. You've got tents, bikes, bits and pieces of things all over the place. It is a tragic sea of humanity. Um, and waiting around for somebody who's mentally ill and under the influence of drugs to spit on somebody or smash the windows or begin you know, yelling at them and accosting them and then try to address it by seeking their detention in a bail hearing? Really? How is this possibly going to solve the problem? There are hundreds and hundreds of people, and that activity virtually by definition is random and nonsensical, mm. right? You you're, know, I you're see not it. I see it. The drug yeah. addicted, mentally ill person from spitting on somebody. You're just not. It's not going to work. The person's out of their mind. I see it. Right? It, yep. It's not a rational activity. They're not there doing some cost benefit analysis saying, gee whiz, if I spat on somebody, might I be captured? What are my chances of bail? I hear there were some reforms in Bill C 48. Let me have a read of those. I hope there won't be a reverse onus provision. Are you kidding me? <clears throat> I, I see it. Yeah. On drugs. That's yep. not going to fix it. So. Yeah. Um, anyways, anyone okay. should just go have a look at that and read Bill C-48 for yourself and ask yourself, is this going to solve the problem? And the answer should be apparent, absolutely not. All right. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I think the arguments that we just heard were quite persuasive. We'll take a quick break. More after this. We are back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue with Legally Speaking. Michael, I think that, and just to make sure that I understand you correctly, and for those who have missed your past shows where I think you've explained this quite well, the issue is, pardon the blunt phrase, deinstitutionalization. Once upon a time, there were medical facilities that we had where dangerous individuals who lacked the capacity to rationally appreciate the harms that their actions were causing were confined and were cared for and were not reliant on the bail system, the criminal justice system, or any other system to keep them in check because they were in the asylum. With the asylums, for lack of a better term, now no longer in widespread use, a criminal justice system that has never been able to keep these people in check is failing to keep these people in check. Do I understand correctly? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we had uh, thousands of people who were in the province that we had met serious mental illnesses who were kept in uh, secure facilities for treatment. It was determined that that was not a humane way to treat somebody who has a mental illness. The promises were that when we closed the institutions, those supports would be provided in the community. They weren't. And so we now have tens of thousands of people with profound mental illnesses who in the past would have been in a hospital, now uh, on the street in many cases, not receiving uh adequate uh, treatment or any treatment for their mental illness, many of whom wind up self-medicating with fentanyl and MDMA and all kinds of other things. Uh, and those tens of thousands of people from time to time do various things that are going to be very harmful to the community. That's what we've got. It's not complicated. The problem wasn't with bail. Uh, that's the origin of it. 
right? Yeah. Anyone who's involved in the system or, or looks at the problem could conclude that that's really the core of much of what we're seeing. And it became much worse over COVID. I think that impacted on people's mental health and well-being, and it's gotten worse. Uh, and until we uh, address that, uh, we're going to continue to have the problems. We can't arrest our way out of it. If you arrest and jail the mentally ill person with a drug addiction and keep them, what period of time do you plan to keep them in jail for? And what are you going to get back in six months, nine months, one year, two years? How long do you want it to be? You're going to get back a mentally ill person with a drug addiction. They're back yeah. <laughs> at great expense of, and waiting until those things happen, which are entirely predictable, and then trying to deal with the aftermath makes no sense. Uh, if you want to stop it, you got to address that problem. We're not addressing that problem. We're pointed in the wrong direction. And I think part of it is people are angry. It's kind of understandable, right? You know, somebody who has their child spat on or coffee thrown on their baby or the window of their shop broken repeatedly is understandably angry. I get it, right? Yeah, yeah. But that problem isn't going to be addressed with anger. Right? We shouldn't get mad at the person who's mentally ill, who's acting out in that fashion. We should help them. Getting angry with them isn't satisfactory. It's after the fact. And thinking that you can predict which of the tens of thousands of people with serious mental illnesses and drug addictions are going to break the window next is an impossible task. Uh, even if you detained everyone who was accused of committing some minor crime, we still wouldn't stop the window breaking in the random assaults. You just wouldn't because there are tens of thousands of people. Look at the stats on the number of people that are dying daily of overdoses. And the number isn't going down, it's going up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we can't jail our way out of it. We have to address those things. We're not. And so mm-hmm. here we are. Michael, I really do appreciate the way that you distill these things down and the way that you explain them. Your logic, as always, is immaculate. Uh, we've got about 60 seconds left. How shall we spend them? Sure. Well, I thought I'd mention this. We mentioned bail, reverse onuses, and people who get discharges. And there was a sentencing decision just released for a person to give you an idea of who will be affected by Bill C-48, not the people on the street. It's an Indigenous woman uh, who has a horrific background, 40 years of age, mother of four, no previous record. Uh, Her background included years of sexual abuse by her brother and other family members, uh, trying to stop her father from committing suicide, a tragic background. Uh, she eventually had a dispute with her partner, hit him on the head with a soup bowl, uh, causing four stitches. She ultimately, the judge considering all that background, granted her a discharge. So if she completes her probation, she won't at age 40 start out with a criminal record. Mm-hmm. The person she hit on the soup bowl, by the way, assaulted her uh, a short time after and went to jail for 120 days. She now uh, will have has a conditional discharge, and if Bill C-48 passes, what it would mean is that if she had a future dispute with the uh, intimate partner, she would have to show why she should be released, and presumptively she would remain in jail. And so that is somebody who Bill C-48 would impact. Uh, well, it will do nothing to help with our problems here. Uh, she is somebody who, with this piece of legislation, if it passes, could have some uh, impact in terms of whether she'd be held in jail uh, waiting for a trial if she's ever accused of something like the Soup Bowl incident uh, in the future. Hmm. Point taken. Michael, thank you as always. Yeah. Until next week. Thank you so much. All Have right. a great day. All right, you too. It's Legally Speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070. Quick break. Back after this.